0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, My name is Daniel, and I'm going to be uh, reading the Bible passage this morning. So I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Now, if you're someone who doesn't have a Bible, uh, we do have Bibles up the back there. So please feel free to grab one to keep uh, and consider that uh, a gift from us to you. So Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 1 through to verse 16. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep "'Nor cattle, nor donkeys. "'They came up with their livestock "'and their tents like swarms of locusts. "'It was impossible to count them or their camels. "'They invaded the land to ravage it. "'Midian so impoverished the Israelites "'that they cried out to the Lord for help. "'When the Israelites cried out to the Lord "'because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, "'This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. "'I brought you up out of Egypt, "'out of the land of slavery.' I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in, in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us, out, bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and, I will st- and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now skip down to uh, chapter 7, verse 1. We'll read from verses 1 to 7. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them, in the valley, near the, in the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lapped the water with their tongues as a dog laps, from from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home.
1: Hey, good morning again, everyone. Uh, we pretty much get uh, new visitors every week. So if you are new to our church, uh, my name is RJ. I'm the associate pastor here at uh, TBC. And it's great that you can join us today. Um, it's a big chapter. So we're, we're really looking at chapter six and seven and somehow condense it in a, in a half an hour sermon. So let's ask God for help to, to speak to us. Father, help us not just to see and understand uh, the story but help us to experience your love and your grace in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In case you're not aware of what's happening in Sydney for the last few days, uh, Taylor Swift is in town for the Eras tour. Uh, If you don't know what that is, uh, Taylor Swift is doing 151 shows across five continents in the span of almost uh, two years. It's a a massive production. It's a massive uh, endeavor uh, for her. And she's about halfway through, Uh, but the Wall Street Journal reported that the ERAS tour is on track to be the biggest in concert history with the potential to gross over $1 billion in revenue. History is being written. This weekend, she's breaking ticket sales record, crowd records, world leaders were fighting for her to do the concert in their own country because of the economic impact it brings. A documentary about the concert was released last year and became the highest grossing concert film of all time already. And the the concert's not even finished yet. Uh, in social media, a lot of people admit that they not only spend money on the ticket, but on merchandise, flights uh, to get their accommodation, traveling to Sydney and on different places uh, that's, that it's available, some spending up to more than $10,000 just for this one lifetime event. Taylor Swift herself is reported that her net worth jumped from $750 million to $1 billion because of the tour. And was said to be the first billionaire having music as the main source of income. There's no doubt that the, the Eras Tour is only halfway, it's a huge success. Taylor Swift is a huge success. People will be willing to spend the money to get a glimpse and have the experience of being in her presence. She's breaking record numbers. And, you know, we love numbers. That is how we count the worth and our significance at the end of the day. You know, your net worth depends on how much money you have. Your influence is counted by how many followers you have. Your, your success is measured by how much you've done. It's all about having more, having more savings, having more followers, having more in your resume, having more properties. Sometimes even in church, the danger is that success is seeing more attendance without having real transformation having more is how we tend to measure our worth and so we often have to make much of ourselves in order to find the security and the significance that we long for in life we aim to have more which is the complete opposite of how the kingdom of God works. Jesus said for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves are the ones who's gonna be exalted. That those who make much of themselves by having more will find themselves having less and those who acknowledge, themselves, who acknowledge their lackness in a way will find their true worth. And so here in Judges six to seven, it's a great example of how having less is really how God works in our lives. Even the way we receive salvation. It's not about doing more for God. But it's actually acknowledging. How much, how much inadequacies we have. And so today I want to show you. Three very important inadequacies. Or three deficiencies in us. In al- that allows us. To really turn towards God. And without it. There's really. There might not be uh, a genuine salvation. In your life. And so we need to acknowledge these three things. Our lack of repentance, our lack of strength, or l- lack of power, and our lack of faith, right? Our lack of repentance, our lack of strength, and our lack of faith. Three inadequacies, three deficiencies that we need to acknowledge, right? And we need all three. So here's the first one, our lack of repentance. So at the start of the passage that we read, that we're basically told that this is the worst oppression yet for the Israelites, Uh, Verse two, it tells us that the Midianites were so oppressive that the Israelites were forced to leave their homes and really hide in caves for protection. Not only that, it's really not just a military oppression, it's an economic exploitation that even every harvest that they make was taken, that people were basically starving. And so once again, in verse six, the Israelites cried to God for help. But notice God's first response, unlike previously, remember, like God sends a savior or a judge to save them, but God sends them a prophet or a preacher, verse 8, to deliver a message. Because the the usual cycle, as we've been saying, that the Israelites rebel, um, God allows allows them to be oppressed because of the rebellion. They cry out to God, repentance, and then God sends a rescuer or a judge. But this time God doesn't send a rescuer. He sends a prophet. Because the Israelites needed to understand why they need rescuing in the first place. God wants them to, to, to understand how they got there in the first place. Now, uh, you know, as a parent, and if you're a parent, you might totally understand what God is doing here. Your, creeds, your kids cry out for help. And sometimes you don't just give them the assistance that they need right away. But before you help them... You might give them a what? You give them a lecture, right? Why? Because if all you do as a parent is to come in and save and do things for them and easily forgive their mistakes, and you'll, you'll basically be allowing them to keep doing whatever they're doing wrong. In a way, you're, you're training them to keep going back to the things that got them in a tro- into trouble in the first place. Uh, and that is why often, you know, the, the juvenile system might not really easily work because teenagers might commit a crime, lock them up for a while, and what they do when they get out? Well, they'll just go back to what they've been doing, and hopefully they won't get caught in their mindset. So what, what do they need? They need a home that provides wisdom and discipline. They need parents and teachers and, and role models and mentors. They need wisdom imparted to them. In the same way, God sends his word to confront the Israelites to help break that cycle. But see, verse 10 says that they're basically not listening. Hence, the cycle of calling out for help is really just goes, goes around and around. They keep going back to the same scene. And so it's, it's almost like from here, from Judges 6 to 7, it's, it's starting to show us the indication that the Israelites are regretful, but they're not really repentant, right? Regretful, but not repentant. And I want you to really understand the difference between the two. See, you can regret doing something wrong, right? But you might be regretting that because it's, it's, it's you're going to have to face the consequence of your action without really uh, repenting that you have offended someone who genuinely cares for you, right? So going back to the parent and child illustration, Uh, If you get in trouble from your parents, you might regret not obeying them because now you'll have to face the the consequences. You'll be grounded. Things will be taken away from you. But you don't really care that you have offended them, that you have disrespected them, or maybe that you have disappointed them. You only care of how it affects you, your punishment. See, repentance is acknowledging that you have harmed the relationship. And see, that's why the Bible makes a clear distinction between the two, that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, it just brings death. Worldly sorrow, meaning that does not, it doesn't produce any, any real change because it is sorrow from the consequences of sin, but you're not mournful of the sin itself. And as soon as you take away those consequences, like like the case of the Israelites, the behavior basically comes back. That's why it leads to death, because it's just in a circling repetition. But see, real repentance removes all regrets because it allows you to turn back to God for forgiveness. And when you have realized that God has forgiven you, you don't look back anymore. You don't. There's no regret. God says, that's in the past. I have forgiven you for that. Now you can look forward. See, regret is all about you, how your life is ruined, how, how this is causing you so much heartbreak. But repentance is all about God, how you have grieved him, how his nature has been trampled on, how his salvation and his grace has been manipulated and has taken for granted. And I think the lesson is we are to check what we are really so sorry about. Are you, are you sorry just because you have been caught out and having to face the consequences of sin in your lives, or are you really repentant of sin itself that you have gone against the God who cares for you? See, sometimes the best thing that God can send you is not relief from your trouble, but a sermon to help you understand your trouble. And that is why, as I said last week, there's no, there's no getting around the, the study of God's word does so much benefit f- for, um, from doing daily devotions and attending a Bible study because it can be the very means God is trying to help you understand your lack of repentance. It can be the very means that, that his word is your salvation. And here's another thing to notice about the sin of the Israelites. Um, verse 13, I think it kind of gives us a hint that the Israelites, haven't, they haven't completely forgotten about God, right, uh, what, what he has done. See, Gideon doesn't say, you know, who's the Lord? Who's Yahweh? We've never heard of him. Or he doesn't say, uh, you know, we have abandoned him, and we've chosen to believe in other gods. I think it actually, Gideon is actually admitting that they know God, they know Yahweh. It says that our ancestors has told us what God has done to rescue us out of Egypt and so on. So there's the possibility that they still believe in Yahweh, in God that saved them, but they have combined the worship of, 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 of Yahweh with the idols and with other gods around them. That they worship the God who saved them, but they're now also worshiping, uh, you know, just we'll add in the, the God of agriculture a bit. We'll add in the God of fertility. We'll get, add in the, the God of economy. It seems like they've been adding more gods into the mix. Again, the more gods, the better they believe. And I think in the same way we might say, you know, we're, we're Christians. We, we're, we worship the Lord. We follow Jesus. But it's so easy that our hearts are actually controlled by the world. In the same way, many, many of us, many of us believe in God, that Jesus died for our sins, and he provides salvation for us. But our belief kind of ends there, that his lordship really ends there. Because for all, for all other things in our lives, right, we rely on something else to provide us that, that security that we're looking for. But if we have... Money problems, uh, you know, we feel fine. We, we have a good super, we have a good portfolio and, and assets that we have. You might say, I have my parents' inheritance that I'm waiting for. That's your safety net. See? You might have some personal and some uh, social insecurities, but, you know, um, but you kind of look at your resume, you, you look at the circle of friends that you have, your, your job even, even your family, and you say to yourself, look, you know, I'm actually good. I'm in a good spot because of all the things that I have. Now I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's that's bad in itself, but whatever gives us that assurance that where that I'm someone, because of all the things that, that's in my life aside from God, that can be an idol. And so this is why the first task for Gideon is to destroy the idols in the city. Because before the Israelites can defeat the the enemy. Around them, they have to defeat or throw off the enemies among them, the false idols of Canaan. And see, that's the main reason for their problems. That's the kind of salvation that they really need. Gideon is, is essentially being told here to, to make God, to make Yahweh the Lord of every area of their lives that we're not to add anything else to him. We're not to add anything else to Jesus to give us the security and the significance that we need. God is not there for us to, to make use of him and, to, and for him to give us what we want, that we are to make him the ultimate thing that we want. Uh, Timothy Keller, the, the late pastor in New York, he often says, and I always keep this quote and keep this in my mind, he says that for religious people, you know, for religious people, God will be useful. But for Christians, God is beautiful. How do you see God? Do you see him just as someone useful in your life? Or do you see his beauty and his glory? We need to figure out if we have truly repented. Do you repent only because of the consequences, the possible consequences that you might have to face? Or do you see how it is truly damaging your relationship with God? That's the first thing. Second thing, we need to to understand and acknowledge our lack of strength. Um, and the second point, I mean, it's quite evident in the text. Uh, remember last week as well, we have said that um, the strength of the enemy is being highlighted. Remember the, the Canaanites, they have uh, 900 chariots with iron, uh, and that's a big problem because it's hard to overcome that. Um, and so the, the author last week is really emphasizing how, in, how it's impossible to win against the enemy. But I think on these chapters, the, the focus is on the weakness of the Israelites themselves. Um, in, in chapter 7, verse 2, uh, the Lord said to Gideon, uh, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me and basically say, my own strength has saved me. God said, I cannot let you win with a lot of men, although they're already, it's already been reduced, thinking that, you won because of you. So God drastically changed their numbers just for them to see that there is no hint of them contributing to the win at all, right? Remember, Gideon started with 32,000 men. It was reduced to 10,000, the same as last week, the same as Barak's army. Now Gideon is left with 300. He's left with less than 1% of the original army. Because if the Israelites ever think that the reason that they've won is because they have done something, or even on the slightest thing, it will slowly make them think, like, you know, if if we only improve our tactics, maybe we won't need God, right? They'll think that maybe God gave us a boost, but, you know, in the end, we, you know, we needed it, but we could have done it ourselves. Or God might have done most of the work. But at least we contributed something to it. That without us, it would have been impossible. It's like when you have a, um, it's like when you have a two-year-old uh, to help you around the kitchen, and th- really they're more of a liability than a helper. But you know, after helping, they'll say, "I helped mommy in the kitchen," right? They'll 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 brag about that. And the next person, they might even say, "I cooked dinner," right? Did you really? See, it is human nature that, that if there is the tiniest opportunity to boast in our own work, we will. Notice that God says that any such boasting is against me. Our boasting on ourselves is an attack on God. As soon as we begin to believe that we deserve credit for, for rescuing and delivering ourselves, we take away the glory from God. And we set up ourselves as as an alternative saviors. And and really, this is the greatest spiritual danger there is, to think that we can save ourselves or or have saved ourselves. The lesson we really need to learn is that salvation is by grace alone and not by earning it with any of our actions. See, he doesn't allow his saving power to work when we think we are strong or when we are strong because God's saving power only works on us when we admit that we have no worthiness or no or goodness or strength to carry it through and here's the reason why this is important because only as we see ourselves as as weak only as we know our own weakness that his love and his grace becomes more precious and more real to us. Only if we realize how hopeless we are that we truly appreciate how glorious he is. Uh, an, an illustration to, um, to show this is that if, imagine if your neighbor uh, comes up to you and he says to you, Hey, you know, one of your mail the other day was delivered to me accidentally uh, and it was one of your bills and that you needed to pay. So out of the kindness of my heart, I just, I just paid the whole amount for you. Now, how would you react to that? Right? I'm sure you'll be grateful. But see, your gratitude will depend on the amount that they paid, right? See, if they paid your, your monthly uh, Netflix Subscription bill of $15. You're grateful and appreciative, right? You're very grateful. And you might even start taking their bins out on, during bin day. But if they paid your outstanding mortgage, you'll be more than grateful, more than thankful. It'll be hard to describe what your feeling towards your neighbors will be, right? Now, you know what God did for you? He saw your bill... He saw your death of sin. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse uh, 23. The wages of sin is death. That's how much you owe. But the gift of God, what he has done for you, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bigger you understand your your death, the greater your joy in what God has given you. So it is only as we see our weakness, It's only when we see our our true nature, our, our sin, that the strength of knowing God's grace and love comes. Jesus says, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. If you think you're not that bad and God has hardly paid anything to redeem you, then you will take his grace easily for granted. You will think, you know, I can change anyway. I really didn't need that help. I could have done it. I, I could pay for, for, my, for, my, for my sins with my good works. Only if you see your weakness, your sins, your own impending death, will you be able to turn to God wholeheartedly. In fact... I want to show you that even the very faith that we, ha- that we have is a gift from God, because Gideon is just re- really the epitome of, of weakness here, even his weakness of faith, uh, our, our last point, our lack of faith. So another major theme uh, in these chapters is the weakness uh, of Gideon's faith, right? Uh, last week, we see kind of the same pattern with, with Barak. Uh, he was having a hard time believing in what God said. Um, but here's the surprising thing between the two. So last week, Barak's uh, lack of faith is seen quite negative. Remember that because of his lack of faith, Deborah said, you will, not be able, you will not be honored for, for leading and winning the battle. It will be given to a woman. But here, it seems like Gideon is worse, right? Because he asked for a sign three times. Chapter 6, uh, verse 17. I have, if I have found favor in your eyes, Lord, then give me a sign. Uh, Verse 36, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, so he's doubting, then he goes, then do this, right? Give, Give me a sign. Make the fleece dry. Verse 39, do not be angry with me. So after God has given him a sign, he says, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. And every time in the passage, what did God do? There was no... It was so surprising that there was no punishment for his lack of faith, right? It seems that God humbled himself and gave Gideon the sign that he needs. That God somehow stooped down to Gideon's level and he accommodated for him. Here, God is shown to be patient even with the weakness of our faith. And I think what this is showing us is that even the very faith that saves us is given to us. Even the saving faith that we have is given by God. Uh, I think that's why in, uh, in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight to nine, it says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now, I don't think, I don't think the apostle Paul is just talking about the work of grace as a gift. I believe Paul is saying that, the, you know, he's saying that the, the sacrifice on the cross and the faith that merited your salvation is a gift from God that even that you cannot boast that, you, that your act of believing saved you. Um, George Mueller is a 19th century preacher. He said this about his own faith. He said, it is true that the faith which I am enabled to exercise is altogether God's own gift. It is true that he alone supports it, and he alone can increase it. It is true that moment by moment, I depend for him, I depend upon him for it, and that if I were only one moment left to myself, my faith will utterly fail. He's saying the faith that saved him, the faith that brings comfort and hope to him, the faith that allows him to persevere, to finish the race, is a gift from God. Now, I don't know about you, but I take great comfort with that understanding. That the very faith that I have is a gift from God. And that is why I will never fail. Because it's not, it's not according to the strength of my faith, but on the grace of God to actually sustain my faith. And this is why, as I said last week... No one can take away the love of God from you, not because of your faith, but because of the grace of God that sustains your very faith. And here's one last thing. It's a good evidence of, of the sustaining faith that God gives. Um, just before Gideon and his army was about to attack, right? God reminded Gideon of his promise. In chapter 7, verse 9, he says, "'Get up, go, go down against the camp, "'because I am gi- I'm going to give them into your hands.'" So he assures them of his promise. And then God said to Gideon, by the way, if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. And God basically gave him another sign. Not because Gideon was asking for it, but because God knew he needed it. God knew how afraid he was. Now do you see how the grace of God actually sustains Gideon? Gideon, it's so funny that Gideon was called a mighty warrior in chapter six, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. And do you know where the angel found him? It says that he was threshing wheat in a wine press. He, it's, it's basically saying he's doing an outdoor job indoors because he was so scared that the, Midian, the Midianites are going to get him. That's how scared he was. And yet here comes the angel of the Lord, and God said, The mighty warrior. Now, what makes him the mighty warrior? Not because of what he can do, but because the Lord is with him. That's his assurance of being mighty. God's presence in him. And you can see that in, throughout chapter six and seven. God's saying, You can do this because I am with you. And God has nothing else or has nothing more to offer you aside from the presence, from his presence in your life. And you can go through a lot. Holding on to that promise. God tells you, go and make disciples of all nations. Go talk to your neighbor. Go overseas to pioneer uh, reaching out to unrich people group. Go serve in ministry. Go do the impossible. You might ask, who am I to do something like that? God's response? Yeah, you're nothing, but I am with you. It's the, the same command... The same assurance, the same God that we see in the New Testament, where Jesus commanded his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And then the promise comes, I am with you always. The Apostle Paul, he sacrificed everything, planted churches, proclaimed the gospel everywhere, faced death, faced persecution, imprisoned, beaten, and all, and all, the, and all those things happening on him. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, He says, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. But see, unless we go, like the disciples, like Paul, like Gideon, we can never experience the power in the presence of God and and what God can do in us. God said to Gideon, If you are afraid, go into the enemy camp, take the risk. Enter dangerous territory, but through your obedience, your faith will be strengthened. Acknowledge acknowledge your lack of repentance, your lack of strength, your lack of faith. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your assurance. We thank you for your presence in our lives because of what Jesus Christ has done and the Holy Spirit residing in us. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. Help us, Lord, not to forget that, that we have the ultimate power because you are in our lives. And so, Lord, for us that have not truly repented, help us to see the weight of our sin in order to see your glory. Help us to see our own weakness that we cannot save ourselves in order to cling onto your power. And help us to even acknowledge our lack of faith that even that is a gift, O oh Lord. So that, that it's not the strength of our faith that will sustain us, but only by your grace and grace alone. This we pray in your name. Amen.